0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and non-fiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. It can be easy to think of the recent history of India, especially for those that aren't Indian, as a straight line from the Mughal Empire through the British Raj to independent India. This, of course, is a hugely simplistic view of the country's history, missing the mess of competing polities, interests, and people that make up Indian history over the last few centuries. Manupalai's False Allies, India's Maharajas in the Age Ravi Varma, published by Juggernaut Books last year, looks at a few of these political actors, the Maharajas of India, who led the princely states, not quite sovereignties, not quite directly-ruled colonies. Palai tells the stories of a few of these princes and princesses through the life of famed Indian artist Ravi Varma as he travels around India in the later half of the 19th century. Manu Pillai is the author of the award-winning The Ivory Throne, Chronicles of the House of Travancore, Rebel Sultans, the Deccan, from Kilji to Shivaji, and The Courtesan, the Mahatma, and the Italian Brahmin, Tales from Indian History. Formerly chief of staff to Dr. Shashi Tharoor, he has in the past worked at the House of Lords and with the BBC on their Incarnations History series. Today, Manu and I talk about the princely states, the maharajas, and why Manu chose Ravi Varma to tell the stories of the Indian princes. Thank you so much for joining me on the Asian Review Books podcast. I'd like to start with maybe a general question, which is what exactly were the princely states? Where did they come from and what role did they play in, you know, quote unquote, British India?
0: Thanks, Nick, for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, the princely states were, they occupied about 40% of the Indian subcontinent when the British Raj uh, existed here. We typically think of the Raj as completely dominating the entire subcontinent, but that wasn't true. Direct control was only restricted to about 60% of its landmass. The remaining 40% was under the control of hundreds of princely states, but there's a lot of mischief even in that classification because you see, about 300 or so princely states were so tiny microscopic estates, really. You know, it's a bit like comparing a country squire with Queen uh, Elizabeth. You know, it's just a classification the British made. In reality, there were about 100 or 120 uh, rajas and maharajas and nawabs who controlled territory that, let's say, had a, a decent population a decent amount of revenue and a decent kind of political standing that would allow them to call themselves states in the formal sense of the term and these princely states they did not emerge in any uniform way you know they, they emerged over as a result of different dynamics at different periods, in sometimes very uh, strange ways. So you know, you, you have you have one uh, princely state that was originally under another state in India. What the British do is they end up demoting the parent state uh, to what is called a zamindari, which is essentially like a landlord or landed estate holder. Whereas the the vassal state ends up being upgraded as a princely state, and kingship there uh, very much took shape with the assistance of the English East India Company. Then you have a state like Hyderabad, which was not only a gigantic uh, enterprise, it also had various vassal states under it, and it was the last representative of the Mughal Empire in India, surviving all the way till 1948. Uh, In in northern India, you have the Rajput states, which were chafing under the Maratha rulers of the Deccan, who had sort of fanned across India and conquered different parts. And when the British defeated the Marathas, the Rajputs quite happily and cheerfully went went on to become supporters and tributaries of the English East India Company. And so at different times, due to different political dynamics, various states in India ruled by various kinds of families. You know, one royal family could be descended from the shepherd caste. and Another would be high-born Rajput families. You know, others would be Shudras, which is the fourth in the caste hierarchy in India. So their backgrounds of these dynasties, the, the internal histories of the states, all of these varied. And it was due to various accidents of history that they all ended up uh, as tributaries to the English East India Company. In many cases, there were signed agreements between the states, which was the instance, uh, which was the case between uh, Travancore and the East India Company, for example. And in some cases, as with Pudukote, there was no treaty at all. It was just an understanding. There was nothing that was ever written down. Suzerainty was, in, in that sense, a very flexible uh, you know, formula as far as pudukote was concerned. So even in the way the princely states were incorporated into what became the British Raj, there's a lot of divergence and a lot of variety. What happens is that by the late 19th century, obviously, the British are now entrenched in India and they feel that we must have some kind of common understanding of the princely states. And that's when they start, you know, uh, creating documents, creating these lists of princely states, trying to organize them based on political prestige and the, the kind of gun salutes each Raja or Nawab was entitled to. And there's a there's an effort to create princely India as one, as, as something that could be understood in a uniform way, which didn't always work, but it, it created this category of the princely princely States as you know, one side of the political equation, the forty percent that governed uh, India under the Raj, whereas the British directly governed the other sixty percent. So that's how the princely states emerged. Uh, they never, you know, they never actually, even though they were classed as one entity or as one block, they never actually ended up cooperating much with each other. Uh, you know, Rajput Rajas looked down on Maratha Rajas due to reasons of caste. The Nizam of Hyderabad, who was the representative of the Mughals, looked down on everybody else because he thought they were all inferior to them. Them, to him as a result of this the princes never really lobbied together they never really became one united force they were quite fragmented but on paper they constituted one category and it was just a way for the british to make sense of them by clubbing all these different kinds of states of different sizes of different political uh, political histories into one category
1: and you know with false allies you're you're trying to challenge i think how people have come to understand the Maharajas and, and the princely states. Um, I'll obviously ask you to get into in, 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 into what the, in, let, let's say, the um, common wisdom gets wrong. But I wonder if you might get into kind of how, I guess, common general history views the Maharajas today before we get into why it's wrong.
0: Yeah, you see the general impression. Partly, you know, it's also the Maharajas and their and their royal descendants, uh, you know, fault I suppose, which is that they 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 viewed very much as these exotic beings dressed in silks and you know they are covered with diamonds and rubies and uh, masters of great palaces and great treasures who have exotic animals, you know, elephants, horses, these great festivals, lots of color, lots of splash, lots of you know flair about them, but. There's a kind of exoticization under the Raj, of course, you know, they were seen as these very traditional Indians, even though, you know, it was the Raj that required them to look traditional. The British needed the Rajas to look like not not only that they were traditional and people who had had some kind of cultural heritage and political heritage they could claim. And then they had to look also as sturdy allies of the British, which meant that the British had an interest in making sure these guys remained in quotes traditional. And, you know, that necessarily was a little bit of a tightrope walk, because in order to look traditional, you would sometimes have to look like an anachronism, you know, in a modern age where everybody walked about in in dark suits and, you know, did their business like these, you know, very hands on men. Uh, you have the rajas in their in their silks and in their wonderful jewellery, who were meant partly to look exotic, partly to look like representatives of a bygone age, while also ex- expected to uh, live up to certain modern standards by their people as well as by the raj. So there was a there was a little bit of a, a conflict there. There was a little bit of that, and the the stereotype of the rajas as people obsessed with elephants, dancing girls, palaces, you know, frivolous little things, lots of grand parties, you know, completely sort of oppressed the peasantry, oppressing all their people selfish, part of that comes from British stereotypes from British narratives that even as it required the princes on their side, the British also needed to make sure that the princes were never seen as too powerful they were never seen as too modern they were never seen as equals therefore the the, the cliche or the stereotype was a way to keep them in check And then, unfortunately, after independence, uh, you know, the the princely states ceased to exist as political entities. But there was official recognition for the Rajas and their dynasties. And they were given these privy purses from the government of India and so on. And they were not very happy with the socialist turn that the Congress Party, which which governed India for many years after independence, uh, the, the, the Congress Party's socialism upset the Rajas and they started backing opposition parties that had a different view of the world. As a result of which, by the late 1960s, Mrs. Indira Gandhi, the then Prime Minister, decides to abolish even this kind of titular recognition of the princes and abolish their privy purses and pull out the carpet, uh, even in financial terms, from under their feet. And at that time, the British stereotype was reincarnated, where the princes were again cast as these feudal uh, despots from some kind of previous age who did nothing, who were useless, who just, you know, were obsessed with their dancing girls. So both the British as well as post-colonial India's Congress governments kept the stereotype alive. And the princes also must, I think, take some of the blame because uh, especially in some northern states, very early on after independence, they realized they couldn't keep up these giant palaces and so on. So they started converting them into museums, into hotels where you know European tourists would come and spend large sums of money and and pay the raja for the you know, experience of living in an old palace. And as part of the brochures, as part of cre- creating that tourist buzz, many of these uh, stereotypical things were indeed Uh, you know, played up by the Rajas themselves, the dancing girls, the elephants, and the the kind of color and the kind of glamour that was associated with, with them in glossy magazines. So overall, it was a combination of several things that led to this stereotype of the Rajas as idiots who happened to be very wealthy, who didn't do much with their power, who were lackeys of the British Raj, and who just had a taste for very many expensive and luxurious things. Uh, the stereotype comes from there. But as I said, it, it originates in the British time, uh, but was sustained even in post-colonial India. And still in great measure, I think most people, when they think of the princes, this is the image that that comes before their eyes even now. So you kind of
1: get at some of the some of the you can say the wealth, the status of, of the Maharajas, you know, and there's, there's so many characters in your book that um, it's hard to keep track of all of them. But I wonder if you might tell us about some of the more colorful characters you kind of come across, you came across in kind of telling the history, um, you know, by virtue of the things they did, the things they spent money on, um, the ways they tried to govern the princely states, who, who are maybe some of the Maharajas that kind of stick most out to you?
0: You know, the the word colourful is interesting because, you know, I think they look colourful precisely because of the ways in which they tried to subvert uh, the British Mm -hmm. Empire. Obviously, they didn't have Gandhi's capacity to organise street protests. That wasn't their style anyway. They were ultimately autocrats. You know, the, the book doesn't argue that they were good in any sense. All it argues is that they were politically interesting. And therefore, their resistance to imperialism also took some very creative and interesting shapes. Uh, one anecdote that comes to mind is and I, although this I, I didn't include this in the book but i it came up during my research there was this raja in travancore which is on the southwest coast of india one of the big princely states ranked among the top 10 and he was in somewhere in the 1830s sent some terrible news from the british in madras which who sort of you know supervised this state and uh, it was not something he liked it was a decision he had tried to avert but the british said no uh, you know we are having it our way and they sent him orders and the orders had to be read out in a public darbar to the raja's subjects now the order was sent in two languages english and the local language of malayalam the Raja tried to negotiate by saying, "Okay, I'll I'll have the English proclamation read out, but please spare me the Malayalam one because obviously, if he reads out uh, you know an order that is detrimental to his interests, his own subjects in Malayalam, you know, his own subjects will think less of him. His own political dignity in the eyes of his own people uh, will be tarnished. So he tries to avoid the Malayalam uh, proclamation." Now, obviously, the British are not willing to play this game. They say, no, you must uh, have both the proclamations, English and Malayalam, read out. And the Raja does his hemming and hoeing, but he finally agrees. What's interesting is that subsequently, uh, the the, the record goes on to say that the Raja did call a darbar. He did invite people and he did have both the proclamations, English and Malayalam, read out. Except that he made sure that when the Malayalam uh, proclamation was read out, none of the usual crowd that came there was allowed in the room. So the proclamation, theoretically, yes, the British got what they wanted, the Malayalam proclamation was read out, but nobody who would actually understand it and then be able to transmit it to the rest of the population was allowed anywhere near the Darbar Hall when that proclamation was read out. So that's one interesting way by which this man managed to, even though he had lost, he managed to still score a small point over the Raj. Often you find that even though the British were superior in military terms, you find rajas and, and rulers trying to use ritual and ceremony and protocol to their advantage. So, for instance, you know, the, in, in multiple princely states, the custom was that anybody entering the presence of the prince had to take off their footwear. You couldn't enter the darbar with your shoes on. And in India, that was normal, it was fine. But the British always found the idea because their look, you know, the the clothes they dressed in looked a bit incomplete without their shoes. So they were always uncomfortable entering these courts with their their feet bare. And they often tried to resist this. They often insisted that the rajas allow them to, to come into the darbars with their shoes on. And in multiple states, you find these rajas, you know, fighting the British on these questions of shoes. Similarly, similarly on, on questions of chairs, because the British resident, who was the kind of representative of the East India Company and later the British Crown, in the, the, the individual darbars, the resident's chair would typically be kept on the left side of the throne uh, with all the other people who were who are seated in the darbar and often you find the british insisting that the chair be moved to the right side because they think that you know and it was true in india the right side is considered more honorable so by relegating the representative of the the, the queen of england or, or or the east india company to the left side the raja was essentially uh, saying that in a ceremonial space they were lower than him and they were not deserving of as much prestige as they wish they would like and and they would therefore you know they they would therefore fight with the rajas on moving the chair to the right side and the rajas would not concede. You know, sometimes these battles were fought for generations. One or two generations would pass and they would still not be allowed to move the chair and it would become this huge political and diplomatic issue. And to us it may look like it was just about a chair but it was actually about making a political point which is that you know, the white man cannot come and order the Raja to move the location of his chair and if the Raja gives in, the Raja again demeans himself in the eyes of his own court. We must remember that any Raja occupied a very complicated position where you have the British above him exerting pressure of a certain kind but it wasn't like he was a, an arbitrary force within his, his state. There were other factions and groups in play within the princely state as well. There were his chieftains, there was the nobility, there was even the bureaucracy, all of whom had different uh, you know, kinds of influence which could sometimes even subvert the Raja's power. And there was the peasantry and there were tribal groups, there were all kinds of people on the ground as well. So the Raja had to hold a balance between the expectations of the British and his own political relevance and you know, the, the relationships he had with these other uh, pieces on the political chessboard for which ritual was again one of the means by which all of this was managed all of this was conducted through these rituals, through ceremonies and so on. In later periods, you also have, you know, rulers like the the uh, Maharaja Ayilam of Travancore. We discussed earlier about how the British quite enjoyed trotting out the maharajas and their silks and wearing their jewels. In fact, at the Imperial Darbars, the British called they insisted that the rajas come out looking flashy and 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 and, and sort of bejeweled and all of that and you find the Tirunal and his brother a man called vishakam Tirunal, who were both maharajas of travancore one after the other they took to wearing extremely simple clothes uh, in their dealings with the british you know any time a white man would come to see them uh, the the visitor would always go back disappointed because he would enter the room expecting to see some kind of exotic creature and there was the raja sitting in clothes that looked like he'd bought them at some local tailor shop you know dull colors very you know cheap fabric because the raja was also in a sense Uh, fighting that stereotype, fighting the idea that he was some kind of exotic creature and he had nothing to do with the actual business of ruling. In the princely state of Mysore, uh, an official publication in the early 20th century, uh, with great pride, it says that when the Maharaja came to power as a young boy of about 20 or even less, one of the in, in his very first year, he handled 900 files, which is to say that the Raja's job isn't just to ride elephants, he also has a job behind a desk doing actual work. Again, it was a way to stand up to the stereotype that the, that the British had circulated. So there were, you know, these are these are very many cases from across princely states of Rajas resisting things in small ways, but there were also those who resisted them in very serious and ambitious ways. Uh, you know, there was somebody like Sayajirao Gaikwad of Baroda who was placed on the throne very much as a British nominee, but proved very early on that he had a mind of his own. He would fund the Congress party, he would have meetings with Congress politicians, which made the British extremely uncomfortable. When uh, Dada Bhai Naoroji, who, who was one of the first Indians to win an election in the House of Commons in Britain, uh, won that election, The election campaign was actually sponsored in great measure by this Maharaja. It really upset the British because they were embarrassed and horrified that a a black man, as they put it, had had, had got a seat in the House of Commons. Whenever he travelled abroad, and he travelled abroad despite the fact the British did not like the Maharajas going abroad too often. Uh, This one went abroad very, very often. And whenever he did, he often ended up meeting known anti-British figures and revolutionaries, you know, people who who actually supported throwing bombs at viceroys and governors of the Raj in India. Uh, his, own, his own state was used as a platform where you know, anti-British propaganda could be published. Anti-British you know, bomb manuals could be, could be printed there and sent off to other parts of India uh, in, in a completely different corner where it would be used against the British state. So he was quite ambitious and he he looked the other way every time. Uh, you know, there was something happening in his state that was anti-British. It could also take, you know, in, in in Mysore similarly, it was considered one of the most loyal states, one of the best run states, had these huge industrial schemes and so on. Even in Mysore, the Maharaja looked the other way every time his press criticized the British. If the press criticized him, they would be taken to the cleaners. But if they criticized the British, the Raja pretended he he didn't see... Uh, What the press was doing. And you have uh, British complaining about this in the early 1900s. And in the 1920s, they're still complaining, because the Raja has practically done nothing about reigning in the press and is is still allowing the press to say whatever it wants, as far as its criticism of the British and not him. So these were the, the strategies by which individual rulers Stood up to the Raj. Uh, the 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 field was not a level playing field. You know they were not equals politically, and therefore they resorted to these disproportionate mechanisms—a kind of you know creative approach to how they would resist further imperial inroads into their states.
1: Right, because it seems like whenever whenever push really came to shove, the British would come in and say, no, 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 you got to do it. You either have to do it like this or we will explicitly overrule you so you have to do it like this. So it seems like they're using, they're trying all of these more subtle ways to, to kind of push back against against the British.
0: Yes, it was quite normal, actually. I mean, the funny thing, though, is that, you know, people imagine the British had a lot of power over these princes, and you know, anytime they came and ordered the Raja to do something, the Raja had no option but to do it. But in reality, this isn't quite true. The British were actually very circumspect, especially with the more powerful and prestigious mm. states. They were very circumspect about uh, about interfering, you know, uh, with the Nizam of Hyderabad. He was notoriously bad at government. His, his people lived, you know, their standards of living were very, very poor. He wasn't a great ruler by any stretch of imagination. But he was extremely prestigious and he, he was seen very much as a natural leader of the Muslims of India. And they were a huge segment of the population, even in British India. So even in British India, if the Nizam of Hyderabad were ill-treated, it would have political consequences even in British ruled territories. The Nizam was, you know, by the by the 1920s, the Nizam had uh, marital relations between his dynasty and the and the last Ottoman Caliph from Turkey. Uh, you know, he 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 was, you know, he, he used to donate money to the big Islamic shrines in foreign countries. He was seen therefore not just as a local figure, but very much as some kind of emblem for Islam. Internationally, so the British couldn't go about bossing him, uh, even if they liked or even if they wanted to. Uh, there's, in fact, a funny quote somewhere uh, in the book which talks about how, at one point, officials of the Raj were just hoping this man would die because he it was so difficult to do business with him. He would, he would simply deny audiences to the British agent, so if the British agent doesn't get an opportunity to come and give the Nizam his opinion on how the Nizam should be running his his state. Uh, you know, it does the very question of the British interfering doesn't arise because there's no there's no open to even have that conversation. The Nizam keeps the British at bay. Uh, similarly, you know another notoriously bad state in terms of how it was run was Udaipur. But the thing is, its ruler was such a prominent Rajput. He was seen as the chief Rajput among all the Rajputs of, of North uh, Western India. And you remember, North Western India is very much on the frontier. And this is the time when the British think Russians are, are planning to get into Afghanistan and wire Afghanistan uh, come and attack India and so on. So the British had to be very circumspect with this ruler also, because they thought a slight to him would antagonize the Rajputs, and they needed Rajputs loyal to them in case of a Russian invasion of India. So. So you know they would give the they would ask and sort of cajole this this raja in 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 Udaipur to I don't know have construct roads modernize his government etc. But he would not move on it for years and years and years and years. It took him. They asked him to raise some kind of a, a a military regiment to serve the empire. At one point in the 1890s, it was only in the 1910s that he finally accepted, and it was one measly little number. It wasn't what the British were expecting, and and this was typical, you know, and it's a way. of of realizing that the British, even though they pretended they had the Rajas under their thumbs, in reality, the Rajas had a lot of autonomy, a lot of power within their states, they had a lot of resources at their command. And they were not uh, beyond allying with politicians in British ruled India to needle the British from another direction. So if the British put too much pressure on a Raja, the Raja was perfectly capable of supporting the Congress Party, for example, and putting pressure on the British from the other side.
1: So we, we've we've gone this far in our discussion, and we haven't really talked about um, the man who's featured in your book's title, which is uh, Ravi Varma. Um, you know, your book kind of uses his life as as its vehicle to kind of go through the stories of of different uh, maharajas. But I guess who was who was Ravi Varma? Kind of what place does he hold in Indian history? Whether that's the its artistic history or its history in general.
0: So, in general terms, Ravi Varma is re- remembered as the father of modern Indian art. He was uh, a painter who essentially took the Western realistic academic style of painting, but combined it with Indian subjects, you know, themes from the Indian epics, the Mahabharata, the Ramayana, and so on. And then in later years, what he did was. He, he was, of course, painting for a very rich and, and prestigious clientele. But in later years, he started producing cheap prints of these works, and the prints became so wildly popular that they started appearing. They were plagiarized. They were copied by people, and they started appearing on matchboxes, on tins selling biscuits and whatnot. But more importantly, they made it to the homes of the average Indian who couldn't afford paintings and who would never go inside a palace and ever actually have an opportunity to look at, uh, you know, the original Ravi Varma works. And this was very important because this was a time when Nationalism was still emerging in India, and India, as you know, is a very diverse country. You know, people have different languages, different religions, different cuisines, different, uh, you know, clothes. They look different. The the color of their skin is different depending on which part of the country you're in. So it, it was very tough to even convince fellow Indians that this was one nation and that they should stand up to the British as one in this time and you know given this diversity ravi varma realized that you know one of the things that was a common thread running through all this diversity was the great indian epics and the epics and their stories and the characters were recognized by Indians everywhere, no matter what language they spoke and how they looked. Everybody knew the basic outline of these stories. So by, by incarnating them visually and then making them accessible through prints, Ravi Varma was help, helping construct that kind of common identity among uh, these various groups of Indians that existed. This is why he's famous and this is why he's seen very much as a, as a part of that nationalistic movement at that time. But I use him for the book mainly because he was also a very talented portrait painter and his fame was built even before he did these mythological works and prints. The fame he had earned was largely because of his portrait activities and his portrait painting enterprise, which took him into all these princely darbars in different parts of India. He was, in fact, an insider in that he was born in a princely state into an aristocratic family. He had close relatives. uh, You know, the Maharaja of Travancore was a relative of his. His own granddaughters in due course would become the Maharani's of Travancore. So he was very much an insider to princely India. But all the same, he stepped out and sort of crossed over into British India. He would paint British governors, British grandees and diplomats and people like that. And then he would hop from one princely state to the other, doing portraits of the Rajas there. And the portraits were not just likenesses. He was also helping the Rajas project the political image they wanted the world to see. So if somebody wanted to look very modern, he would be, he would be painted by Ravi Varma with a stack of English books next to him. If somebody like the Maharana of Udaipur wanted to sort of look like a custodian of tradition, he would be painted with his traditional sword and shield and, and very much along a, a template that, that exists in miniature paintings from centuries before. So Ravi Varma was very flexible that way and he was able to cultivate the princes and help the princes create their own political image. And as I said earlier, there were hundreds of princely states even counting just the important ones there were over a hundred of them and I don't want to arbitrarily choose which ones I would study because you know sometimes there's a subconscious bias what if to make a point you end up picking up states uh, picking states only that fit your argument you know states that are all you know super well run and and highly modernized and so on and I don't want to therefore do the choosing myself out of the broad 100 Instead, I thought, you know, this man's gone around different princely states of different types in different parts of India. If I just track him and study the states in which he's worked and use the paintings as a means to tell the stories of the states, as well as their rulers, it would give me, I would not be making the selection. I would be researching what is given to me. And that perhaps in some ways would be a more authentic way to understand the the very complicated, contradictory things that were happening in princely India. So, you know, Ravi Varma begins in Travancore, which is very modernized, very anglicized, reports and documents are all being done in the English language. From there, he hop, hops on to Pudukotai, where Pudukotai is a, is, a, is a state ruled by kings of the Kallar caste. Kallars were branded by the British as a criminal tribe of robbers, except that in Pudukotai, these so-called robbers had transitioned into kingly status. So the dynamics there in the history there was very different. And there's a, there's a whole caste thing over there. Uh, from there he goes off to Baroda Baroda Baroda's in Gujarat where the people speak Gujarati but its rulers were invaders who had come from elsewhere in India and were Marathas so that had its own dynamics, its own interesting political history. Then he comes to Mysore which was you know, a, a princely state that was under direct British rule for 50 years and the ruler had to wage a legal battle for a long time to get the state back. So you know, here I was able to talk about the legal entanglements the Rajas had with the British Raj. And finally I go to the, the, the princely state of Uda which is a highly feudal, highly you know the opposite of, of modernized, the opposite of what was called progressive at the time, and and proudly so, you know its ruler held on to all this with great pride. So it was again a completely different kind of princely state. And and soon after Ravi Varma dies, and you know everything changes in India in general uh, within a year of his death. So I thought for the period I want to cover, for the different kinds of princely states I need to cover in order to to have some kind of an argument to make, Ravi Varma was a very good running thread uh, to have in the book.
1: So I'd like to kind of return back to, to the princely states, especially kind of near the, the end of their history um, as we kind of move into the period of independent India. Um, what ultimately happened to the princely states, you know, as India starts to, you know, as, as it declares independence from, from the British?
0: Now, the, you know, this is the thing. Most people think that the Congress Party, which, you know, sort of edged the British out of India, uh, hated the Rajas from the beginning. But as I said earlier, in fact, for a long time, the princes were very friendly with the Congress Party. They used to give large sums of money to the Congress Party uh, officially and a lot underhand as well, all the way to the 1920s. And as late as 1934, Mahatma Gandhi, who was the leader of the Congress, was uh, against toppling the princes. You see, because for a lot of Indians, the princes were seen as represent of, of a political system from before. They were seen as custodians of religion. They were seen as custodians of culture. So at a time when the country was colonized, the princes also represented something traditional, something that had come down to India traditionally from an earlier period. So Gandhi, you know, Gandhi himself was born in a princely state. His father served a princely state. So it's not surprising that he had great respect for the Rajas. In fact, he if, if you look through his writings, you'll find that he actually praises a series of Rajas and, and you know, has, has great reverence and regard for them. What happened? What happens, however, is that Gandhi, in a sense, also transforms the Congress party from an elite affair where English speaking uh, Indians came together and then, you know, drafted moralistic arguments for why empire was bad. Gandhi changes that into a mass movement of the peasants. You know, it becomes about the people and it becomes about a, about mass agitation. And this juncture at which the Congress Party moves from elite politics and armchair politics to mass agitation, this starts uh, giving the Maharajas, you know, uh, the, the jitters as well. Because ultimately, while they're willing to support the Congress So long as the Congress is against the British, the strategy of rousing the masses is something the Maharajas are not comfortable with either because they themselves are autocrats. There are good autocrats, there are benign autocrats, but ultimately they are autocrats. And then so there's suddenly a kind of falling out between the Congress and the Maharajas in the mid-1930s. And there is a growth of Congress-style Mass agitation in the princely states. So the Congress exports its toolkit into the princely states, and the princely you know subjects start standing up to the rajas. And at this point, the rajas start becoming more and more and more repressive. In fact, even in the in the in the better-run princely states, states that were seen as you know iconic model states, wonderful, etc., etc., you find that the rajas are now shooting at their subjects. They're they're clamping down on dissent. They're not at all being uh, very progressive in their mindset. So they've got roads and schools and industries, but there's no freedom in these states. It is at this point that the Rajas start losing a lot of public sympathy. And of course, they may still have found a way to exist as, as you know, semi-autonomous in, units in post-colonial India, were it not for the fact that there was partition in which you know, Pakistan was cut off from the Indian subcontinent. India was divided into two nation states rather than one when the British left. And I think that hacking away of Pakistan and a fear of Balkanization meant that the Congress Party in the late 1940s was absolutely determined not to allow any floating units like the princely states to exist in the country. They required a strong center. They required full control. And the Rajas having this kind of cultural legitimacy, autonomy, great resources at their command uh, was was seen as something of a threat. You know, a, a state like Hyderabad, uh, we in India, we use a very sweet term uh, police action, you know, saying that, oh, the, the Indian police went in and took over Hyderabad. But it was actually the Indian army that went in. And uh, a report that was later commissioned by the government was never released because it, it estimated that between 28 and 40,000 people were killed in Hyderabad in the aftermath of the Indian army's action into Hyderabad. Similarly, you know, Travancore. Travancore was a very well run state, had very high revenues. But there was a festering communist problem there. And more importantly, Travancore was on the coast. So the Indian government feared that its coastal location meant that anti-India forces could be given some kind of a plank there and the Indian government would have no control if the Raja was allowed to retain any kind of political power. So for these reasons, and for the larger interest of a hard-won nation-state, especially after Pakistan was cut off, the princely states had to go. And I think most Rajas realized that this was inevitable, and most of them bowed out with with relative grace. Some of them, like Hyderabad and Travancore, tried to resist, but even there, ultimately, the Indian government had its way.
1: So to kind of take another, let's say, think about this a bit more conceptually, um, you know, we tend to think of polities today as, you know, they're, you're either countries or you're not, you know, you're either a sovereign country or you're in essence nothing, um, which of course leads to all sorts of problems in how we understand your national system today. Um, it seems like the princely states don't fit cleanly in either category. You know, they're, um, they're not fully sovereign. They, they still have to kind of fall the lead of the British. But as you note several times, they have a lot of power within that system. Um, So I wonder how you might kind of want to think about how you might, how would you kind of characterize the princely states kind of using this framing of like of countries and sovereignty to maybe paraphrase another way, you know, if something like the UN had existed, say, before 1945 with the princely states. Have had their own
0: seats. They would not, although they were allowed representation in some international matters. For example, when the Treaty of Versailles was signed, the only Indian signatory on that treaty is actually a Maharaja, because the, the princes were allowed to participate under the, the guidance of the British, of course, and within their camp, they were allowed to participate in international uh, affairs in a limited way. In, in fact, uh, the, the real reason was that the British needed princely armies. In the late, in the 1880s, I think, it was estimated that the princes could marshal about 300,000 troops and of course the british had an incentive in making sure these troops were not too well armed because then they could be used against the british but all the same they were available and they were you know they were taken to china during the boxer rebellion they were taken to uh, africa they were they participated in the first and the second world wars so the princes had some kind of presence internationally you know in that sense at least uh, whenever there were military conflicts and the empire needed them but in terms of you know how you would define these states i would say the sovereignty was divided in the princely states in the sense Mm. that they were sovereign as far as finances internal autonomy you know internal resources went but they considered that foreign policy was something the british would handle for them so they were not allowed anything that could be called an uh, uh, an autonomous Mm. foreign policy their foreign policy was entirely in the hands of the british but everything else in large measure remained in their hands similarly defense you know even though they had they had nominal numbers of troops you know a big state might only have about 3000 or 4000 troops uh, you know a state like gwalior in the 1840s it was one of the last states to really fall under under complete british domination it had a, oh, i think 40 or 50000 troops as late as the 1840s which was then after the british defeated the raja it was all whittled down to a, a much more nominal figure so in, in, in terms of hard power and defense also the Rajas conceded a lot to the British but it also benefited them You know, because they were spared spending large chunks of money on defense they were able to root a lot of that money into education into health into developing infrastructure that made in some of the bigger princely states it made standards of living far better than what was on offer in British rule India but it was essentially I think the concept is divided sovereignty it was they were not full sovereigns but neither were they complete uh, lackeys of the Raj they occupied some kind of hazy mirth Middle Territory. And, and they tried sometimes to bypass it. As I said, the Nizam of Hyderabad going and marrying, ha- having his heir marry the daughter of the last Ottoman caliph was uh, sort of him trying to play some kind of larger international role and, and emerge as a kind of Muslim leader in the larger Islamic world. So there were some efforts in that direction, but otherwise foreign policy was conceded uh, largely to the British. And I, I think initially the, the princes hoped that even in post-colonial India, they would retain something like that. In fact, their instruments of access which they signed in 1947 with the Indian government, it says that the princes are completely autonomous and all they concede to the Indian government is defense, communications and foreign policy. Essentially the same formula that existed under the British. It was only in 1949, once the Indian government had sort of established itself, was more in control, that the princes were then persuaded to actually integrate their states into the Indian Union, at which point they ceased to have power. So even the, the limited sovereignty they had ceased to exist in 1949. And kingship after ceased to exist as as a, 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 on the plane of sovereignty, but remained, let's say, in, in a ceremonial capacity and a ritual capacity it continued to exist till 1971, which is when all titles were abolished and the princes became ordinary citizens of the Republic of India.
1: So I'd like to kind of end by asking about the legacy of the princely states in India today. You know, first of all, can you see the influence, the, um, the effects of the princely states on Indian politics, Indian culture today, and also what do ordinary Indians think of the Maharajas and the princely states kind of decades after they, they ended?
0: I think there is still a great amount of curiosity and in some cases even reverence and respect to this state because you see in, in, in a lot of political parties in India, there's a not, you know, a uh, small number of ex-princes and royal descendants who've actually been participating in democracy. And they all have their, you know, ancestral capitals and pocket as their pocket boroughs. you know, that's where they get elected from. And people seem to keep electing them out of a mixture of, you know, earlier reverence combined with their capacity to play the democratic game and actually win elections and give their people something new, uh, something in the new dispensation. You know, they're able to sort of occupy this, this interesting middle space where they represent the Older order, but also gel well with the current uh, system that we have. In terms of you know other legacies, in fact princely politics does ex- uh, affect Indian politics to this day. You know, I take a, a state like Karnataka, a huge portion of which was part of the, the Maharaja of Mysore state. Mysore politics under the princes for quite a long time, you know, a couple of centuries, it was in great measure determined by a kind of by by in a triangular relationship between the court and its relationships between two peasant groups, the Lingayats or the Virashayvas and the Vokalikas. To this day, Karnataka politics, democratic politics, sort of is pivoted around these two important communities. So, that that princely politics as it existed then has sort of continued into post colonial democratic politics as well. Except that instead of dealing with the Maharaja, these communities are now dealing with uh, a democratic system and they've, they've constituted themselves into political parties and, and groups and so on. Um, You know, so there's that. And most importantly, I think there's uh, the kind of ritual influence they still have. The Maharaja of Travancore, for example, does not exist as a legal entity, you know, on the streets of Trivandrum, which is his former capital. So there's still the palace, there's still all of that, but the Maharaja is an ordinary citizen. However, the Supreme Court of India has affirmed that a very important temple, in fact, the richest temple in India, the the Sri Padmanabhaswamy temple, which used to be the Maharaja's dynastic shrine, is still controlled by the Maharajas and, and and the Supreme Court has affirmed this. So every time the Maharaja crosses over from the street and enters the gateway of the temple, he again ceases to be a common citizen because he has very important ritual rights. And that includes escorting the deity a couple of times a year to the for this big ritual bath at the you know by the sea. And he, the Maharaja, you know, he still holds his state sword, he still wears these old jewels and the deity from the temple is escorted by him. And accompanying the Raja are policemen. Policemen and representatives of the modern Indian state. They actually accompany the Raja in keeping with the old tradition to the sea till the ritual concludes and the Raja goes back to the temple. So during these rituals, the Raja still exists. The king does not exist politically, but in a ceremonial plane, the king continues to exist. And this is true of other princely states as well, where a lot of rituals uh, still require the presence of the Raja. And different scholars have in fact done uh, studies on how kingship has survived in India even after the the advent of democracy. And of course, and this is perhaps a little nugget which most people might be surprised about, including Indians, India still actually has legally recognized princes, you know, moving about. Yes, Indira Gandhi abolished the privy purses and recognition of all the princes who had signed agreements with the Indian Union in the late 1940s. But remember, the British had toppled a number of princes well before this. And all of them had different agreements with the British Indian state. And those legal obligations were inherited by the Indian government after independence. So, for instance, in Kerala, there's a ruler called the Zamorin Raja of Calicut. He is still officially recognized, and there is still succession, and there is still an allowance, a political pension paid by the government to the Zamorin Raja of Calicut because it all comes from an 1805 treaty and that treaty was never abrogated by the Indian government. That that was a, a legal obligation the Indian government inherited from the Raj and it still continues to respect. So he is still a legal prince in that sense. So too if you go to the state of Tamil Nadu, there's actually somebody called the Prince of Arkot who has I think the, the, the rank of a, a junior minister in the state government with police escort and several privileges and, uh, and and, and, a, and a financial allowance as well, because his uh, political status is also dependent on an agreement with the British that the Indian government continues to honor. So the princes, in that sense, exist on a cultural plane; they exist on a ceremonial and a ritual plane, and they exist in democratic politics. But some of them still exist legally in India as well.
1: So I think that's a great place interview with Manu author of False Allies: India's Maharajas in the Age of Ravi Varma. But I do actually have a couple final questions, some real final questions, which are, uh, where can people find your work? And what's next for you?
0: Ah, well, what's next is easy to answer. I'm in the process of uh, writing up my PhD thesis. In fact, I must apologize to your listeners because I'm very sleep deprived as I speak. So if there are any blunders in, in, in what I've said, please excuse them. But yes, that's what what's up for the moment. So I, I hope to finish my thesis by the end of this year. And as to where my books can be found, you know, the usual places, bookstores in India, unfortunately, this one isn't available abroad yet. Uh, And on Amazon, Amazon seems to be shipping it overseas at some kind of exorbitant price. Uh, And of course, it's available in ebook format also. So if you have an Amazon India account, you can read the online version.
1: So, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianBookBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at BookReviewsAsia. That's reviews plural. And there are countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. The ARB podcast is on our favorite podcast apps Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in around and about Asia. Next week, join us for interview with Karen Cheung, author of The Impossible City, A Hong Kong Memoir. But before then, thank you so much, Manu, for joining us today.
0: Thank you for having me, Nick.